Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I was asked to take part in um, the Museum of Curiosity, uh, which is a Radio 4 panel show, last weekend. And um, I was asked at quite short notice. It did rather suggest to me that somebody had dropped out. <laughs> uh, but, but, I, but of course, never turned down a gig. So I was, absolutely, I was so thrilled. And also, the Museum of Curiosity is like my my son's favourite radio programme. So, it was really, so I get an, an email and it says... Andy, we've got a slot coming up on the Museum of Curiosity. Two things. It's happening this Sunday. Um, so are you free on Sunday? I went, yes, of course, I'd love to. And, went, <laughs> Let me check. And, the panel, oh, yes. and, the, and the panel is <laughs> Kathy Lett and Stephen Fry. Are you OK with that? And I went, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then spent a whole week fretting about it. I mean, Kathy Lett's amazing, because when I was a, a journalist, like a junior reporter on the Sunday Telegraph, we always used to get those last-minute stories on a Saturday where some ridiculous survey would have been done by the University of Ohio. And, um, and I remember one of them was, like, whether optimists made better lovers than pessimists. And the, the one person he could always rely on to give an amazing last-minute quote, which enveloped itself in puns, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, was yeah. Kathy Lett. She was amazing. She was so good. And, of course, Stephen Fry was so good. And it was so like, much fun to do. They record for about two hours. It's live audience. It's live audience. It's, the, it's, yeah, it's at the radio theatre. It's great fun. And the audience don't know who they're going to get. So they're all... They if I'd known, I'd, and have come, I'd have come and heckled. I was just <laughs> get <laughs> so off, John, Miller. So John Lloyd introduces you guys. Oh, very, very pleased to introduce Andy Miller. People go, oh, you know, mild, and <laughs> smattering of applause. He goes, Kathy Lett. Whoa, Kathy Lett. Stephen Fry, the place of the uproar, as yeah. you can imagine, you know. You're not, you're, not, you're not allowed to say what you put in, are you? I'm not allowed to say what no, I put in. Cool. But what I put in is, is I yes. was really... Does it have a book-related... It does have a book-related theme. But, but also, it was just... It's one of those things where when you... Somebody, you meet somebody like Stephen Fry, as famous as Stephen Fry is, right? And what you realise is, as he's sitting there both t- chatting to you backstage and then chatting in front of an audience, he, he's not off 
he's never off. No. Because that's Stephen Fry. No, he literally he, he isn't. Just... I mean, Stephen literally is never off. Mm. Also, I kind of felt when I was talking about my, you know, about my various things that I was talking about, uh, which are things that I've, you know, researched over a number of years and it could be considered my specialist subject, Stephen Fry's ability to just yeah. uh, augment <laughs> what I was saying effortlessly with further <laughs> expertise, with no notice whatsoever, was really pretty, um, yeah, pretty impressive. So... Uh, Yes, yeah, so that was great. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. You join us in the writerly decorated Fulham bedsit of our sponsors Unbound, the website which brings authors and readers together to create beautiful books. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound. Uh, and I'm Andy Miller. I am the author of The Day of the Jackal. <laughs> and jo- joining us today is author and journalist Elizabeth Day. Uh, hello, Elizabeth. Hello. Uh, formerly a staff feature writer for The Observer, uh, Elizabeth's fourth novel, The Party, is published in July by the excellent publisher Fourth Estate. Uh, yes. How exciting. I mean, as equally good as Unbound, one mm. might say. Yeah, they've been What's amazing. Your, they've been amazing. And, they, <laughs> and they've got an incredible cover and I'm really excited about it. It's a, in real time a dinner party, isn't it? It's real time at a party, which a incorporates party. canapes, which one might describe as dinner. Okay, so it's but not yes. a dinner party. <laughs> it is, yes. It takes, it takes place over the course of one Quite evening. Quite germane to, uh, to, to the book that we're here to talk about today, which is Rosamund Lehman's The Weather in the Streets. But first, Andy, what have you been reading? This podcast will go, be going up ooh, on the... Oh, it's probably, if you're listening to this, the day of, of issue, it is Monday the 17th of April... Uh, 2017, just a few days ahead of this year's Record Store Day on Saturday, April the 22nd. Record Store Day, as uh, some of you will know, though not all of you, is a day where record shops, I don't know why they call it Record Store Day, record shops are full of... It's an American affectation, I think. It came from America. Ghastly. Um, (laughs) Like like mac and cheese. (laughs) (laughs) So record shop day is on Saturday and record companies release special limited edition vinyl pressings of things and people sleep out overnight on pavements to get that limited shaped 12 inch picture disc of Toto's Africa or whatever it is that they've decided they want. And this year for Record Store Day, the enterprising publisher Bloomsbury is bringing out the new novel by the brilliant Magnus Mills. It's entitled The Forensic Records Society. I think he's one of the best comic writers working in Britain today. He's also found this strand of humour in what I would describe as sort of frustrated, bureaucratic crosstalk with groups of men sitting around not quite understanding what the others are getting at and with all sorts of schemes, the scheme for full employment or The Restraint of Beasts is about building fences, yeah. if I remember rightly. Anyway, this novel... Co, kind of... Yeah. Good job on Co. Quirky. Yeah. I hate the word quirky. Quirkier, right? It's very stylized the way yeah, no. Magnus Mills writes. Is it like funny Kafka? <laughs> it is like funny Kafka. <laughs> it is like funny... Are you listening, Bloomsbury? <laughs> you can have that. It was a good day. Funny Kafka. Funny Kafka. So, anyway, so this new novel is coming out for Record Store Day. It's been printed to look like a seven-inch single. The hardback comes in a, a, a dust jacket with a die-cut sleeve, like a paper record sleeve. And it's about the, a, a society called the Forensic Record Society, which is a group of about half a dozen men who meet in the back room of a pub in order to listen to records properly. Right? <laughs> three, three at a time. 
<laughs> with solemn respect and without recourse to personal interpretation. <laughs> Amongst the group's founding members, it's an article of faith that theirs is the only correct way to listen to <laughs> records, right? Brilliant. And uh, as the society grows in popularity, splits and schisms occur <laughs> in the society, leading to the foundation of rival organisations such as the Confessional Records Society, <laughs> the Perceptive Records Society... And in time, inevitably, yeah, the, the new forensic record society, right? <laughs> so it's, there's, there's often a question around Magnus Wills's um, novels about whether he's writing allegorically or yeah, not. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's no question around this one. You know, this is clearly a book about faith and dogma and what have you. Now, to give you a flavour of it, what I want to do is I just want to read the very beginning of the book and then subject it to a close reading. <laughs> You'll see why in a minute, OK? This is how this book starts. Here we go. Chapter one. I saw ya. We listened closely. The voice sounded slightly remote, as if it came from an adjoining room. It was followed by a fuzzy silence. James gazed at the turntable as it ground to a halt. That's Keith, he said. You certain, I asked. Yes. Not Roger. <laughs> no. He played the record through for the third time. This was the agreed number of plays. So he then removed it from the turntable and returned it to his sleeve. As he did so, he gave the label a cursory glance. Fabulous music, he remarked. <laughs> now, I am going to uh, just give you five interesting points about that, the thing that I've just read. Close reading, right? Five interesting points. OK, so the first thing is John Elizabeth Matt. Do you know which record they were talking about in that extract that ends, I saw you, and has band members called Keith and so Roger. So the Who? Yeah. It is the Who, correct. Is it... Can you narrow it down? Is it a, is, when you say it's a record, is it a 12... A 60 it an single. Or a single? 60, 60 single. single. I, I so miles. wish I could I come was... in here with the right answer. <laughs> it would be so Is it I Can See For Miles? It isn't. It's Happy Jack by the Who, right? Okay. Now, so the first thing to say is Magnus Mills never mentions that. Right. So that is, so he's tapping he's into already. A, he's already yeah, got yeah, me, yeah, yeah. right? I'm going, oh, that's, that's Ooh, happy by the hook, right? <laughs> oh, which record? Is, oh, okay, oh, okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, James's remark, fabulous music, that is a really obscure joke because fabulous music is the name of the Who's publishing company <laughs> so, oh and is written on the label of Happy Jack because I had a look, <laughs> right? So that's the, right, so oh, the, oh, that's the second thing. The third thing is... The Forensic Records Society is in part a novel about dogmatic belief and how it can lead one astray, and that's foreshadowed in that tiny exchange <laughs> with these two people arguing yeah. about is it, is it Keith Moon or is it Roger Daltrey yeah. saying, I saw you at the end of Happy Jack. Point four, the person who says, I saw you at the end of Happy Jack is neither no, Keith Moon nor Roger Daltrey. <laughs> It's Pete Townsend, right? Which leads me to point five. I have no doubt that the author, Magnus Mills, is well aware of all that. And that me, by pointing it out to you, have fallen into the trap that he set me. Because this is a book about how men and a few women just can't see the wood for the trees when it comes to certain subjects. And that's kind of a recurring theme in all, in all his books. It's such a funny book. If you're going to Record Store Day on Saturday, hold a bit of money back and buy this as well. John, what have you been reading? <laughs> Couldn't be further away. I've been reading, um, <laughs> I've been reading Clover Stroud's memoir, 
the wild other. I, Clover, I've known for some years. She was worked briefly in the in the bookshop that we had in the QI bookshop in um, the QI club in Oxford. And the thing that everybody knows about Clover is that when she was a teenager, her mother was in a terrible riding accident, which left her completely paralysed and in a coma for 22 years. And Clover was the youngest child of, I think, five, two families jammed together. So the book is an exploration of that, but it's mm. a, a much more than that as well. It's, it's her life story. I think it would be fair to say that, that the grief that Clover felt at, at losing mm. her mother in this very kind of painful way, losing and not losing... I mean, the, the wild in the title refers to the wildness of what happened to her. She went to Ireland where she travelled with gypsies. She went and worked to, uh, as, uh, on ranches in Texas as a, as a road, became a rodeo rider, got, got her spurs doing that. She falls in love with a, an Ossetian gymnast, a rider. In the, uh, her sister, Nell, runs Gifford Circus and she runs away with him to Ossetia where pretty terrifying kind of groups of, of kind of... Uh, gangsters with guns and so it's it's a memoir of how she kind of processes without giving too much away her mother eventually does die and she it's how she then makes sense of all these experiences and becomes uh, a mother she's got five kids and the book ends rather brilliantly i liked it because it's i'm interested in otherness that idea of this mm-hmm. other which she writes about i think quite brilliantly in the book I think you've read it as well as well. I have read it. No, yeah. I totally agree with you. I think it's a brilliant title because the wild other is within her, within Clover herself, but it's also the horses that she rides. It's Absolutely. the embracing of the darkness that yeah. they represent. The, I think that, that embracing of the darkness, it's interesting, there's a connection that will come on to with Rosamund Lohman, I think, um, not too tenuous, but the idea the Jungian other, you know, the shadow, the thing that you are always trying to escape, it's in the end only by embracing it that you... You can come to any... I mean, she's battled with depression. She's battled with all kinds of difficulties. But it's, I think it's beautifully written. Yeah, I, I did read one, just to get a flavour thing, um, just from the, towards the end of the book, where just, just after the, her mother has finally died. So she's kind of lost her mother twice. In the decades between mum's accident and her death, I thought I'd known grief since I was constantly mourning the loss of the person and all the life she had been. But after she died, I realised more clearly that though I had glimpsed grief... It had never really been present in my life. I'd just mistaken it for trauma, which is very different. Trauma is electric and dynamic, intensely painful, but sometimes strangely exciting too. Trauma had whipped me awake in the night to shout words I couldn't hear as I was shaken out of sleep from another dream about finding my mother, then losing her again, or being violently dispossessed from a childhood home I didn't recognise. Um, it's really, it's, it's beautifully mm. done. And... And you come out of the book with a massive kind of respect for her and also for her husband, who's had to put up with a fair amount, it would be fair to say. The slightly tangent, I mean, the slight link with Rosamund Lehman was that Rosamund Lehman's life, in a way that when Clover, I saw Clover talking about the book and she said, I can't believe I'm still talking about my mother's accident. 25 Mm. years. Rosamund Lehman lost her daughter, Sally, at age 24. And you get the same sense that sometimes things happen in people's lives that are so deeply traumatic that they can't, you know, that it takes, it takes them almost... I mean, in Rosamund Lehman's case, we might talk about it a bit, a bit later on. Well, her daughter died in the late 1950s and Rosamund Lehman died in 1990. Yeah. And it's, not, it's perfectly reasonable to say that Rosamund Lehman spends the final third of her life trying to understand... Uh, that event. 
and, and perhaps succeeds or fails, depending on your point of view. But well, we talk, I, I, we'll come on to it. We'll right? come on to it. The book chat will continue on the other side of this message. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Elizabeth, weather in the streets. Yeah. Yes. By Rosamund Lehman. When did you first uh, encounter this uh, book or encounter Rosamund Lehman? I first encountered Rosamund Lehman when I was... Um, snaffling through a second-hand bookshop, as is my wont. <laughs> and um, and I came, I'd heard her name, but I'd never read her books, and I came across Invitation to the Waltz. Um, and I picked it up, and I read it, and I loved it. And Invitation to the Waltz, I discovered to my delight after having finished it, was the first in one of two books, the second of which is The Weather in the Streets. Um, and it features the same protagonist, Olivia Curtis, who in Invitation to the Waltz is depicted as a 16, 17-year-old um, on the threshold of maturity who meets this dashing young man, Rollo Spencer, at a ball. But The Weather in the Streets, I then came to a couple of years later. Again, I picked it up in a second-hand bookshop, and it was one of those beautiful old Virago editions. And I liked it even more than Invitation to the Waltz because it seems to me that The Weather in the Streets deals with serious issues of what it is to be a single woman and a single woman in a society. So it was published in 1936. So a single woman in a society that was going through a period of transition where the class boundaries were still very much in evidence but were starting just about to blur. And Olivia Curtis is a woman who belongs to a sort of middle-class society and she um, stands betwixt and between the aristocracy and the sort of bohemian crowd that she rolls with in London. And... um, In The Weather in the Streets, Olivia Curtis is now sort of 10 years on and she um, has got married, but she's separated from her husband, not divorced. And she meets Rollo Spencer once again on a train um, on a visit back to her parents because her father's got pneumonia and is ill. And that starts an affair. And I, when I read it the first time, I'd never read anything which so accurately portrayed that feeling of guilt... Mm-hmm. And yet guilt coexisting with this sort of immense happiness of falling properly in love. Mm. And I just find it amazing. And it's been a really wonderful exercise rereading it for this mm. podcast because I first read it in my early 30s. I'm now in my 
mid to late 30s. And, um, and I've, you know, in that time, I've actually, you know, I've been through a marriage and I got divorced. And sorry if this is TMI, but I've had, I had a miscarriage. And Weather in the Streets is most famous for its Absolutely. abortion scene, yeah. mm. which was revolutionary for the time. But just rereading it now, it is so damn good. And it's so modern. And the way yeah. she writes brilliant. is also unique. She writes from um, the first person and the third person, sometimes within the space of a single page. Incredible. And I hadn't noticed that the first time. I was so sort of engrossed in the characterisation, and it was just Do amazing coming back to you think you noticed it. that because you're writing fiction? Were you, when you, were you, had you written it when you first... I'd, I'd written my first novel. Right. And my second novel I wrote um, contemporaneously with having read The Weather in the Streets. Yeah. And, um, and, and, that it, and it's fascinating coming back to it because I've now written two more novels and I had not realised how psychically this book had affected me <laughs> because there's a scene in my new novel, The Party, out on 13th of July. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a scene in the new Published novel. Published by Fourth Estate. <laughs> and the new novel is all about uh, actually a male observer who's desperate to belong to a more glamorous aristocracy aristocratic crowd and there's one specific scene that I'm thinking of where this protagonist's wife has a showdown with a mother figure who is an aristocrat who's Lady Fitzmaurice and like Lady Spencer in the the streets and it's so I mean Rosamund Lehman does it brilliantly and I hope that I've achieved (laughs) half of that but I had no idea that that had stayed with me all that time. Can I ask I'm going to ask um, first John and then John's going to ask me John when did you first what can you, when can you remember when you first heard the name Rosamund Lane? <coughs> Bookseller for Virago. She's just one of those. She was one of the big. I, I hadn't. I didn't read her, um, but I was aware of her being the kind of. It was the sort of the emblematic Virago writer, as you said, encountered in secondhand bookshops, but had somehow fallen out of print. Interesting why that happened, and then was sort of. I think they re, were republished in the. Was it the late 70s, early 80s? They were, pu- they were republished in the early 80s. We should yeah. talk a bit about this later on, but they were instrumental in, in establishing Virago. They sold about 20,000 copies per book. The yeah. Rosamund Lehman books? Yeah, and they were, they were a big su- publishing and, success and Carmen when Khalil, they reappeared. One of the you know, sort of founders of Virago became a great friend of Rosamund Lehman's, and the, indeed there's a, the introduction, despite the slightly, I think, misleading comparison of Rosamund Lehman. I don't th- to be honest, I don't think Carmen meant it to be compared in any way to Bridget Jones' diary. I think what she was saying was at the time when, they, when she was growing up, these books were passed around as, mm. as, as kind of second-hand used paperbacks, women who were growing up in the 40s, 50s, 60s, because they were so brilliant and so unlike anything, anything else. And, and they were, I guess they, they kind of had a cult status. But the, that was the first time I was aware of of her, and, I, and also, I've, I've, you know, I've had relationships with women, almost all of whom have read and recommended Rosamund Lehman to me, and now, finally, I've come around to it. I'm going to pitch my, my tent here that I, I, like you, John, remember as a bookseller Rosamund Lehman's books being on the shelf and just being in the background, and I remember the Penguin... 20th century classic of Dusty Answer. Yeah, maybe. Um, but I hadn't read anything by her until the start of this year. And I read Invitation to the Waltz. And I read it, as long-time listeners to Batlisted will know, because of my um, never-ending, burgeoning enthusiasm the, for Anita Brooks. This is the time check. How long are we into the podcast? <laughs> and, uh, Bruck, Bruckner's up. And here indeed, on the front cover of Weather in the Streets, is a quote from Anita Bruckner. Uh-huh. Rosamund Lehman was Anita Bruckner's favourite 
author. But so I read Invitation to the Waltz, which I loved. And actually, I think, I think Invitation to the Waltz, I'm speaking in April, is the best book that I've read this year so far. I mean, I really like Love Weather you, in the Andy. Streets. I really <laughs> like Weather in the Streets, yeah. but I, re- I loved Invitation to the Waltz. So I read Invitation to the Waltz. Then I read The Weather in the Streets. It is with when you, we knew you were going to come on and talk about it. And then I read, in, in quick order, I then read Dusty Answer, because I asked people you did, you on Twitter. Massive I got a massive, massive response. response on Twitter. I said, which, I've read these two, which should I read next? And the two books that people said loud and clear were Dusty Answer, which most people said, and The Ballad and the Source, which a handful of people said. Mm. So I've read, I've read four of her books in the space of about three months. And what I'm here to report back from that experience is that <laughs> I, really, I really find the way that she writes constantly fascinating, even if some stuff I don't think always works all the time. But also, those four novels... I can't remember reading a writer... I mean, we talk about J.L. Carr. Well, the very first episode of Battlestar we did was about J.L. Carr, where all of J.L. Carr's books are different from one another. With Lehman, each of those four novels is really pretty different from one another in terms of actual style, Even the style in which they're written. And yet, you could pick them up, open them up anywhere, and probably know you were reading a novel by Rosamund Lehman. Yeah. She's got this very interesting way of looking at the world, even if the way in which it's expressed changes from book to book. One of the things I really liked about uh, Weather in the Streets, and I haven't read... I, I, I would definitely read more. I, I, I went the other way. I read, I, I read her memoir, which, I, I, uh, which is The Swan in the Evening. Mm. That photo of her is... Sorry, yeah. you can't hit, look at this, listeners, but that photo, she looks like a cross between Betty Davis and... Marilyn Monroe in that photo. It's bizarre. It's called Fragments of an Inner Life. It's really, I really, really loved it, I have to say. I mean, it's not without... The death of a daughter definitely affected her very, very deeply, but it's a really intelligent... Well, see, The Swan in the Evening. Yeah. Yeah, so The Swan in the Evening is published in the late 60s. Yeah. When she hasn't written or published anything for 10 years. And she did, in fact, she only wrote one more novel after, after that. Which, is, uh, which I haven't read, which is where she attempts to yes. incorporate a lot of her. She went into a sort of a... I mean, she stopped writing after her daughter died, which was, as you say, 58, I think, or something. Yeah. And then this was written in 67. And Sea Grape Tree, which sea is the one novel you're talking about, is 76. And was universally panned, wasn't it? I mean, yeah. it was... A, but I think it was well, very, very, not yeah, kind of. Yeah. So, do you think we could have a representative? Uh, <laughs> no pressure. Uh, no pressure. Could we? streets? Well, we should we let's we have a bit first. Let's have a bit first. Yeah. Okay. Well, the bit I've chosen to read is where she's talking. Rosamund Lehman's talking about the nature of time and how it warps when you realise you've fallen in love with someone. It's the beginning of section two. It's the beginning of section two. So um, Rollo has just um, declared himself and said that he's interested in seeing Olivia. The other thing that I want to say about this book, just quickly, is that it's two people being nice to each other, and I know that they are flawed characters, and Rollo definitely is a flawed character and behaves (coughs) in certain ways or doesn't behave in certain ways, but ultimately there's there's love there and affection there, and... um, and I, I just really rather, point, I rather like that. That's a really good yeah. point. Okay, so um, here's Rosamund Lehman on time. It was then the time began when there wasn't any time. The journey was in the dark, going on without end or beginning, without landmarks, bearings lost, asleep, waking. Time whirled, 
throwing up in paradoxical slow motion a sign, a scene, sharp, startling, lingering as a blow over the heart. A look flared, urgently meaning something, stamping itself forever, ever, ever. Gone, flashed away, a face in a train passing, not ever to be recovered. A voice called out, saying words, going on, 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 eternally reverberating, fading out. A voice of tin, a hollow voice, the plain meaning lost, the echo meaningless. A voice calling out by night in a foreign station where the night train draws through, not stopping. There was this inward double living under amorphous impacts of dark and light mixed. That was when we were together. Not being together was a vacuum. It was an unborn place in the shadow of the time before and the time to come. It was remembering and looking forward, drawn out painfully both ways, taut like a bit of elastic, wearing. There were no questions in this time. All was agreeing, answer after answer, melting, lapsing into one another. Yes, yes, darling, yes. Smiling, accepting, kissing, dismissing. No argument, no discussion. No separate character anymore to judge, test, learn by degrees. He was like breathing, like the heart beating. Unknown, essential, mysterious. He was like the dark. It's great. Oh, it's so good. Beautiful, and you know, that's real, but that's, re- that's real writing. Yeah, Do you know what so I mean? Real, because it conveys so much, as well as being just sort of lyrical and, and sort of incredibly structured, it conveys so much. And, it's, and she's also amazing at dialogue. And, I, oh. and it's very rare to read a writer who can do both, yeah, so the okay, lyricism yeah, and the dialogue. Great. She's, she does the interior thing. And I, technically, what I found so, I mean, really revelatory is I think she's doing what Wolf even Joyce are trying to do with, with the representation of consciousness. I think she does it in a way that actually, as you're reading it, kind of works better. The way she moves, she, as you said before, moves from first to, to third person. So that you're in a character's head and then you're out again and then you're looking mm. at the characters and then you're in again. And that sense of inside-outside, funny, I just had a little bit that was a bit, it's a bit further on than that, but I just, if you wanted to pinpoint the peculiar kind of netherworld of when you're having an affair with someone... This, I just thought this, was, this, this captures it, and it, I think it's also kind of where the title comes from. Beyond the glass casing I was in was the weather, where the winter streets in rain, wind, fog, in the fine frosty days and nights, the mild, damp, grey ones. Pictures of London winter, the other side of the glass, not reaching the body, no wet ankles, muddy stockings, blown hair, cold, aching cheeks, fog-smarting eyes, throat, nose not my usual bus-taking London winter. It was always indoors, or in taxis, or in his warm car. It was mostly in the safe dark, or in the half-light in the deepest corner of the restaurant, as out of sight as possible. Drawn curtains, shaded lamp, or only the fire. In this time there was no sequence, no development. Each time was new, was different, existing without relation to before and after. All the times were one and the same. It's just brilliant. Oh, that's so good. And it is that sense of being in a bubble yeah. contained from the rest of the world. And, and the weather in the streets is so interesting because often Rollo is shown as someone who protects her yeah. from the outside world and he's always ushering her into taxis, as that passage says. Mm. And, mm. and it, it, it does have to be furtive and indoors and this yeah. gradual encroaching sense of suffocation. 
Beautiful. I'm, I'm just going to read the blurb on the back of my, I think, early 90s Virago edition. Pass me, pass me yours, Elizabeth. Let's see what we've horrible edition. Let's see what we've got here. Mm, they're both quite short. Let's do, <laughs> let, let's do both of them. Yeah, okay. okay, so this is, this is the early 90s Virago edition. This is a love story of a sort. Taking. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. What? Okay, let's come back to that. Carry on. <laughs> this is a love story of a sort. <laughs> Taking up where invitation to the waltz left off, it tells the story of Olivia Curtis, ten years older, a failed marriage behind her, thinner, sadder, and apparently little wiser. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, am I amusing you? <laughs> a, chan- a, chan- a chance encounter on a train with a man who enchanted her as a teenager leads to an adulterous, forbidden love affair and a new world of secret meetings, brief phone calls and snatched liaison in anonymous hotel rooms. Years ahead of its time when first published, this subtle and powerful novel shocked even layman fans with its searing honesty and passionate portrayal of clandestine love. I mean, it's like they're playing chick-lit bingo. It's like forbidden love affair. <laughs> Tick. Hermione, yes. I, <laughs> Hermione Lee did, did, said doomed chick-lit was, was, was one it's, way of this looking. Is, I've got so much to say on this, but do you want to Good. read it? No, no. It's, I mean, uh, it, well, I, we... we well, look, this is... I'm, I know, I, I'm not going to read the other blurb. Because it's almost exactly the Because the, the other same. blurb is a condensation yeah, of that blurb. Yeah. You, can, you, I, you can see. I think uh, Rosamund Lehman has suffered greatly from being called a romance novelist, a sort of middle-brow romance novelist. Ah, so, now, you use the M word there. Yeah. That is really interesting. So I was reading... There's some really good... We'll come on to Rosamund Lehman's biography in a minute, but I was cross-referencing it. There was a mention in Selina Hastings' biography, excellent biography of Rosamund Lehman, of Rosamund Lehman's friendship, very prickly friendship, with Stevie Smith. Stevie Smith is an author that we did on Batlisted last year, so I went and found Francis Spalding's biography of Stevie Smith and cross-referenced it with that. And Francis Spalding, in that biography, refers to... Rosamund Lehman as let me see if I can find this solid middlebrow and he's not joking and um, this seems the moment to bring this in I, there's an essay by Jonathan Coe about Virago in the 80s and he sort of addresses this here he says um, Lehman was not one of the novelists I discovered on my first ventures into the Virago list but once I'd been introduced to her a few years later, it was the start of a literary love affair which has lasted now for more than two decades. The Ballad and the Source, though it's probably my favourite amongst her novels, is not typical. Even some of Lehman's admirers find it embarrassing. It's a story of the relationship between a mother, her daughter and her granddaughters in which betrayal, manipulation and emotional histrionics are shown to have a cumulatively destructive effect across the generations. It is indeed melodramatic, although as someone who has always seen life itself as being full of melodrama, I simply find that this adds to the realism. When I first read it, I bought copies for many of my friends, confident that they would thank me for introducing them to a masterpiece. Polite silence, however, seemed to be the more usual response. It was my first intimation that layman's fiction was something of a minority taste. I'm still at a loss to say why. It seems to me that she has every quality that a great writer should possess in spades. An extraordinary gift for description, for evoking the tones and textures of the material world an exceptionally sophisticated approach to structure, progressing from the linear narrative of her first novel, Dusty Answer, to the complex arrangement of embedded narratives in her last major work, The Echoing Grove. And above all, 
an astonishing, unembarrassed emotionality which gives a visceral power to her recurring themes, thwarted love, faithlessness, the unbearable sadness of naive romantic feelings being crushed by the passage of time. It's because of the single-mindedness with which she focuses on these themes, I suppose, that Lehman's reputation remains problematic. In her day, she was certainly considered an important writer, and she was popular too. But still, to look back on some of the reviews she received is to be reminded that notions of what constitutes a serious writer can be heavily weighted with assumptions, and also that the Virago Modern Classics project was, and remains, a necessary one. Uh, that's so fascinating there, because I, I do think Rosamund Lehman suffered from many of the things that I would say Elizabeth Jane Howard suffered from, and yeah. Elizabeth Jane Howard is yes, also one of absolutely. my favourite novelists. They were both astonishingly beautiful. They both had um, complex love lives and were often overshadowed by the reputation of their more famous lovers, most yeah. notably um, Cecil Day-Lewis, who they both had affairs with, um, and in Elizabeth Jane Howard's case, Kingsley Amis. They both talk... Um, they both write about family settings but in that microcosm they talk about deeply important things that affect us all um, in the way that we are humans and it's a matter of uh, such irritation to me that for decades and it's getting a bit better now but female novelists if they wrote about a family were dismissed as sort of domestic dramatists whereas if Jonathan Franzen does it or indeed Tolstoy let's look at Anna Karenina which is all about a family that's a great state of the nation novel and and there's such a disparity between the two and and as much as I appreciate that Jonathan Coe essay the word emotionality I think is still sort of troubling like I would say instead of emotionality Lehman has this sort of acute empathy and that for me is what novels should be about character and empathy and understanding I must say, I agree with you, Elizabeth, but I must say I found the... Uh, and I hate saying this, so f sorry, listeners, and sorry, everyone. I struggled with Dusty Answer in a way that I did not struggle with Invitation to the Waltz or The Weather in the Streets. I did because too. I did Because too. Dusty Answer seemed to me clearly... It's a first novel, mm. right? Well, right, exactly. So there's a kind of prodigious element to it. Yeah. That it's written very young, but also it's tremendously enervated and Bloomsbury-ish and I, I found it as a, you know, greying, fat-headed Surrey male nerd. <laughs> I, it pushed me quite hard to, to find my way into it. Whereas I didn't find that with Invitation to the Waltz. I didn't find that with The Weather in the Streets. Yeah. You know? I, I actually agree with you about dusty answer but I think as John says it is her first novel and what I do appreciate, appreciate about Rosamund Lehman is that she takes risks she's not showy about it but she does take risks in every single one of her books and she makes it well, certainly in The Weather in the Street she makes it look easy and again I think that's something she's suffered from oh, she, she makes it look easy she's a brilliant choreographer the, the dinner party scene is the part you know <clears> she's <throat> putting characters into, into situations as you say the dialogue I think is, is, is incredible but it's, it's really interesting what you say about the, the difference because I think in many ways it's the psychological profundity in Lehman. I think leaves, you know, Bride said revisited behind. I think there's, I think there's an amazing yes. sensitivity to actually what happens within a relationship between a man and a woman. And, you know, I, I, I guess as a, as a man I struggle a, li a little with Rollo. You want to give him a, a, a good slapping because she's amazing. You know, she, Olivia Curtis is one of the most brilliant female characters Absolutely. I've ever encountered in literature and I think the way that that's drawn 
there are times when you think, oh, for God's sake, you know, give up on him, go and get a job. You know, you don't need Rollo in your life. But as you say, they're very kind. You could easily turn Rollo into a caricature. I mean, you know, he's kind of, he's dashing, but he's not, he's never, he never degenerates uh, into, into, yeah, into being a Yeah, no. he's not a bounder. He's not a bounder. No, he's not a bad bounder or a cad. Your sympathy never t- is totally lost for him. God, that, yeah, the final exchanges where she's you know, not really having any of it and he's still trying to kind of, it's, it's yeah, it's a pain, painful book. Also, she does the great, I would like to just talk about my favourite scene in the book is, so there's a, one of the things that I think makes her a, such an interesting writer is, like all interesting writers, what she leaves out. So the, so this famously, this novel was scandalous in its time because, as you said, Elizabeth, because it has a, scene uh, with an abortion in it um, which the American more, publishers wanted to remove. Far more scandalous in fact uh, we, we may well come on to this but Voyage in the Dark by Jean Rhys which was published two years earlier, another uh, scandalous novel with an abortion <coughs> scene in it. Rosamund Lehman and Jean Rhys were brief friends we might discuss yeah. the terms of their meeting because it's pretty good um, but this scene in the book you, you, you don't, you see the run up to the abortion and then she leaves out the thing you might expect to read. And when you ne- next meet her, she's on her way home and she's waiting for the, the miscarriage to start. And she, she goes to a cinema. She doesn't feel too bad. And then she comes out of the cinema and she's beginning to feel not, n- not too clever. And she bumps into her ex-husband, Ivor. And this, this is my favourite scene in this book. I just want to read this little bit. Um, her, her husband, with whom she's sort of, from whom she's drifted apart, from with whom she was never really in love, they sort of seem to irritate one another more than more than that they hate one another. They waited together on the edge of the circus, then crossed towards the Criterion, then across again into Piccadilly. Extraordinary, depressing, how the old relationship re-established itself at once, pat and neat, without a moment's embarrassment or uncertainty. Oneself aloof, caustic and cool, pricking every balloon as fast as he blew it up. A sadistic, conscientious governess. He, resentful, aggressive, feebly jaunty, making a stand against yet wishing to collapse to receive protection. Had supper, he looked at her out of the corner of his eye. All I want. Where are you making for now? Home. If you want to come along and forage in the kitchen, you can. I can't offer you much, but I think there's a tin of tomato soup and some bread and cheese, perhaps a bit of ham. Thanks. I will, if you don't mind. His voice brightened. He's hungry. He stepped out more jauntily with his short, sissy-ish, sideways-veering gait, one shoulder up, one down. Well, I can't walk anymore, she said presently. Get a taxi, will you? He hailed one opposite Burlington House. Pain. The lights, the traffic swam and snapped in her head as she waited. Pain. In the taxi, she huddled in a corner. After a bit, she burst out laughing. This is a rum start, she said. I suppose it is, he said absently. He was leaning forward to watch the clock. It's all right, I've got half a crown. Though I don't know, he said. It it doesn't seem outstandingly odd to me. (laughs) Rather pleasant, she didn't answer. And presently he noticed that she seemed to have been taken ill. Oh, now, the notes that are being hit there, yeah. Yeah. You, notes of character, the yeah. development of the plot, 
the the description of him there, you know, what's that phrase that I feebly jaunty. Feebly jaunty. So much. So wonderful. Also, she writes it with such a lightness of touch, yet elucidating such profound and painful things within that. And I think it just hearing you read it as well, it just brings it home to you. She's terrific. I mean. How many novelists? I know yeah. that I wouldn't do this. If I were writing a character who was ha- had just come out of an abortion and was suffering a miscarriage, I would not have that character run in, coincidentally, to her estranged <laughs> husband. <laughs> but it's brilliant. It's actually a brilliant... Th- and you believe in it, even though it's a sort of ridiculous coincidence. So we've got a clip now of um, Rosamund Lehman talking about how she went about writing her novels, which seems like it might be appropriate at this point. I'm not very disciplined... I've never been able to shut myself away and, and write regularly. I've always had so many other things to do. And when I really began a writing career in the 30s, after I married, I had children to look after and a house to run and a lot of entertaining to do. And the children always came first. And I always found it very difficult to start a book. But once I had started, I simply went on... Sometimes I wrote for a couple of hours and sometimes I wrote for five or six hours. I started at word one, line one, page one, and went on till it stopped. Well, I, I, what I think so interesting about that in terms of what you were saying, Elizabeth, is those artistic decisions seem, that, that seem like they were often made instinctively rather than as the result of, yes. you, know, you know, in-depth planning. Yes. That where, where will I find the next interesting thing which will yield a moment of revelation of the character or a moment of emotional revelation? Never where the, and the beats are never quite where you think they're going to be. I mean, she, she gets annoyed in lots of the interviews, that, as all novelists do, by the, you know, the, 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 the lazy questions about is it, you know, how autobiographical is it? Although she does say about Olivia Curtis that there's quite a lot of Olivia, there's quite a lot of her in Olivia Curtis, and you do get that sense that, like all, I think, great novelists. I mean, I mean I'm struck that we sh- we should also say that these three books, uh, Dusty Answer was a massive bestseller, mm. and the, the next two, and no, in music. fact, there was, was the, these were, there was a one in between, wasn't it? A note in music, less, and then invitation to the walks, and, and then, then weather in the streets. I think in a, something like 1936, she was described by the New Yorker as the you know the greatest living novelist. So she had a fantastic early reputation, which is all the more remarkable that she only really wrote seven novels, mm. but she she lived it. It's also worth time. saying. Um, because we're backlisted and we like the, the, the publishing insider story, that she moved from... Chateau had been her publisher yeah. for her first three novels. Uh, and after Invitation to the Waltz, she moved for the big bucks <laughs> to um, HarperCollins, or Collins as it was there. Yeah. And um, there's a description in the biography of... Yes, she, she was... Some things don't change... She, she was offered an advance of £750 for the weather in the streets, over twice the amount, £300. Chateau had paid for invitations to the waltz. HarperCollins then launched a very... If they, uh, there'll be nobody from HarperCollins listening. Uh, <laughs> a, a very Collins-ish, what's described as a showy campaign of posters and, and was a huge bestseller. Weather in the streets was a huge bestseller. So this idea that of Lehman, she can't quite win. You know, she, she is hanging out with... 
Strachey and Virginia Woolf and all these famous literary writers. But she's also selling large quantities of books. In France, particularly, Dusty Answer, the title of which escapes me in French, is still a very famous, very well... They loved her in in France particularly. She was a bestseller. I think the other thing that she does brilliantly, which often gets overlooked, because the weather in the streets is a story of an affair between a man and a woman, but she does relationships between women terrifically well. Yeah. There's a relationship between Olivia and her older sister, Kate. Oh, it's wonderful, Which yeah. is so brilliantly painted in a very understated way, but the book opens with Olivia being called by her mother, yeah. um, telling her that her father's ill with pneumonia, and Olivia finds out um, that Kate, her older sister, already knows and has been there for sort of some days, and, and, and so much is told in that little detail that Kate is more responsible and seen as the more family-oriented one, and indeed she's the one who's produced the grandchildren. And there's a great deal of love and affection between the two sisters, but Olivia can't help but feel she's somehow the black sheep and has somehow sort of failed convention in comparison. And um, I think it's not often that relationships between sisters... Um, are that well portrayed yes. in literature, I don't think. I think it's a tricky subject. I felt I'd really benefited from reading The Weather in the Streets so hard on the heels of Invitation to the Waltz. And I know, what, I know it's, you probably don't need to have read Invitation in the Waltz, to the Waltz, but I found it um, partly because of the thing you were talking about, Elizabeth, partly of tracing how the relationship between the sisters, it's so brilliantly sketched in Invitation to the Waltz, and then it's picked up again. In, in relation to very specific events that, that you've been told about, little moments of exchange between the sisters, which, which are then picked up ten years later. And uh, just the, the, I love the scene where they're, you know, just, again, just her ability to, to, to catch the kind of uh, the ebb and flow of, of, of being at a party where you're, you're a middle-class person at an upper-class yes, party. Yes, it's very Jane Austen, and I it's, feel. It's exactly, and there are moments when she thinks she's lost with the dialogue with Marigold, and she, she feels that she's... Lo- and then it, it comes back again, and she feels she's, she's back in them. I mean, I don't think I've read anywhere a, a better account of, of, of that kind of uncomfortable... John, John, I just, I, I just feel we should give people the bits and pieces of the biography. Oh, yes, we should. It's so splendid. Uh, so Rosamond Lane was born in Buckinghamshire in 1901. She is the second of four children. One sister was Beatrix Lehman, the actress. Her brother was the writer John Lehman. He was also the editor of New Writing. Writing. Yeah. The Lehmans were a, a, a sort of a literary family who, who attracted both praise and a degree of contempt. Stephen Spender yeah, said of them, the Lehmans <laughs> think they're the Bronte sisters when in fact they're the Marx brothers. So... The church, they were educated at home, and then she was a scholar at Girton College, Cambridge. She wrote her first novel, Dusty Answer, when she was in her mid-twenties. By um, 1928, she'd already been married twice. She had one son and one daughter. Then a note in music, Invitation to the Waltz is 1932. The Weather in the Streets is 1936. As we've discussed, her daughter dies very suddenly in the late 50s, and she develops an interest in spiritualism, which carries her through really to the end of her life. She writes about it in the book you were talking yeah, about, yeah, which John. Is, um, 
uh, uh, the one in the evening. And just, just quickly, I think she gets a bad press for that as well, yeah. because there's a, a sort of great deal of condescension about the fact that she yeah. sought comfort in that. But then so did Conan Doyle when his Absolutely. son died. And she, he never faced the same sort of... And we should all, but also... It's a brilliant short book, The Swan in the Evening. I'm really, really pleased as, I, I read it, because it's, 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 she's not an idiot. I mean, she writes no, no, no. beautifully about about her, her actual physical... I mean, the spiritual experiences, the mystical experiences that she has. She evolves a sense that there is something beyond life uh, and that life persists. But she's not gullible. I mean, it's, 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 I, it's wonderful, right? And, you know, and she, she is a huge kind of devotee of, of Jung. She's, she reads lots of, lots of very sensible psychological... We should also say, I think, you know, she, she is mixing with... If I just read you this list of names of the people who pop up in yeah, yeah. Selena Hastings' biography. Virginia Woolf, Guy Burgess, Rex Warner, Stephen Tennant, Denton Welch, Elizabeth Bowen, Laurie Lee, Lawrence van der Post, Noel Coward, Ian Fleming, Stevie Smith, Jean Rhys, Jean Rhys, etc. Top table. Et yeah. the th- but, and here's the thing, the intellectual's distaste for spiritualism is a way of keeping this best-selling author as quote-unquote solid middle-brow. That's what Rosamund Lehman thought. That's what I think. You know, there is a way of saying, well, she can't have it all. She can't have literary credibility and be a bestseller and be so beautiful, which she was famously beautiful. And what we should also say about Rosamund Lehman is that she was the international vice president of International Pen. Yeah, yeah. And she's a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. She's a member of the Council of the Society of Authors. She's a... She's not a lightweight. Mm. The idea that, that she was in some way scatty and female, you know, the, exactly what you were saying, Elizabeth, the idea of her as, as... A writer of romance. A writer of romance and a person of some lightness. She gets, gets carried away by her waters, like that kind of sense. And yeah. I think the other thing is that, that she was crushed as anyone would be, by the death of her daughter Sally. I yeah. think Sally was 24, and it was an infectious disease while she was on holiday in Indonesia. So it was completely out of the blue. And after that, I, and I know the Selena Hastings biography talks about this, she became... Uh, she had a slight, what one might interpret as a slightly more bitter attitude towards the world. And I think a lot of people, again, dismissed her as sort of shrewish and... Um, slightly unpleasant to be around and and it, and it's just so unfair yeah it's so unfair really and really i mean I, th- I think that you get that like i say that the writing in um, in the spawn in the evening is it's really really beautiful i, I just like for that. I'm, I'm, for that. but i i i feel i i i like this feeling you have of in, that there's injustice i think there is i think you're absolutely right and i have to say much as i love and admire um uh, at Virago, I think that the sort of the, the, the contemporary, the newer, the newer jackets are not helping. I mean, they're definitely. But they're in print, you know. They're in print. That's really they're important. available. Yeah. They were out of print for many years. They've been in print since the 80s. Virago have kept them in print, which is commendable. Oh, I it's think. Brilliant. We were we were talking a bit earlier about the um, the circles in which she moved. Uh, Rosamund Lehman moved. You know, she had a, she has a long, very serious affair with the to be poet laureate yeah. Cecil Day Lewis. Which ends very badly. Yeah. He, he she, leaves her he for goes, his goes off with Mike job. job and she yeah. also gets into a few literary uh, feuds and squabbles. One of which is with Stevie Smith, with whom she had a very prickly relationship. They tended to write rather unkind reviews of one another's books. <laughs> and um, but I've got I must. This is a quote from Stevie Smith, who'd had a sort of you know a spat 
on an exchange of letters with Rosamund Lehman, and then she wrote to somebody else and said, I've been getting rather involved lately with the literary boys and girls. You know how bunchy they are. Phew! Words fly round and lose nothing in the telling. I now have to keep on asking people out to dinner to explain I didn't say what I was reported to say and so on. This is very tedious and expensive. Please, I see The unintentional, the one story I like, which I, from the biography I love, was that she had a brief affair with Ian Fleming. Uh, where Ian Fleming rather caddishly double-booked her and his wife uh, so they all, they arrived at the, at the at the house at the same time, and the wife was foul to her. But to cheer her up, <laughs> he, he gets a live squid and carries it into the bedroom. But Rosamond is not amused no, by not this. Why does he get the live squid from? <laughs> Just the official. They're, 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 they're in the Golden Eye. Golden Eye. Right. In, but uh, there, there's not a lot of laughs in the last in the last third of her life. To be fair, no. she loses. You know, she, her books stop selling, go out of print, and she loses her looks as well. And yet, at the same time, she has this revival via Virago. Yeah. She, she opens the Virago bookshop in Covent Garden. Do you remember that? I barely... I can, I yeah, can I remember, remember it, but it's, it's, like, this, it's like 1984 or something. Incredible. Uh, or 85. Yeah, I was just going to read... I, I, just as another... This is comedy, right? This is what she does, which I, which I think is social comedy and observation. And there's a lot of... I don't think the nuances of, of class have been better written about in the, in the, in the 20th century. So this is the women doing knitting and needlework. I can't bear having idle hands, Mary confessed gently. I got the children's winter jumpers finished and stockings for John, so I thought to myself, well, why shouldn't I give myself a treat and do something in the ornamental line for a change? What's it going to be, dear? Oh, it's just for a chair. I'm doing a set of eight for the dining room. What a labour for you. She uses italics brilliantly through the yeah. book as well. What a labour for you. Well, I think it will be gay, she said meekly, holding up the square with her dear little old-fashioned head on the side. And there's the killer. Nothing you did or conceived of could ever be gay. And do your children know yet they hate you? That's the internal monologue. It's, that's just kind of like comes out of nowhere. You think, and Whoa. It's, so, it's so modern. That it's is so, so modern. Well, the thing is, it, I kept having to go back and check. Like, when was this written? 1936. I know, and you think, oh my God, it's extraordinary. Yeah. So in 1957, uh, Rosamond undertakes a therapeutic course of LSD. <laughs> uh, yeah, because she was a friend. She was a chum of, of Huxley's as well. She's a chum of everyone. Yeah. So, and then she wrote her description of her acid trip. And I would be neglecting my duty if I Brilliant. didn't read out her description of taking LSD. A hard-edged, semi-mineral, disparate world of artefacts and coldness. Phenomena that astonished me and yet had no meaning and from which I was horribly separated so that I could feel no love for or pleasure in them. And the visual hallucinations I had for a time were of reptilian or crustacean forms of life i.e. PTR's hands became crawling lobsters. His face and also the psychiatrist looked knowing in italics. <laughs> Crafty-eyed, although archaic images of stone. That's like the classiest <laughs> <laughs> description of an acid trip ever, isn't it? It's amazing. So usually Olivia and Rollo have their assignations in uh, Olivia's flat or hotel rooms, um, but this is the first time for various reasons that she has had to go to his marital home. We went up to the next floor, the stair carpets chestnutty brown and the paint deep, tawny, yellow, nice, and opened a door 
and switched some lights on. It's a lovely room of its kind, it really is, I exclaimed. And he said, yes, it's nice, isn't it? We knocked two rooms into one to make it. That we was rather painful. I saw them planning it, doing it together, to be a background for Nicola, pleased with it together, showing it off to their friends, never thinking I'd come and look at it. I told myself rooms made by a couple, joint possessions don't matter, they're not a real tie, not important, but they are. They're powerful. The light came indirectly from three long, shallow-scooped niches in the walls, and these had tall, white, glazed pots in them, elaborate Italian shapes filled with artificial flowers, brilliant, bright-coloured arrangements, formal but not stiff, seeming to have a kind of rhythm in them. I thought, if Nicola did these, she can do something. Oh, I think that's so just good. so telling, isn't it? it well, again, it's that what you said earlier, the generosity too. There are so many ways you could cheapen that scene the first time you're in the, you're in the marital home of your, of, your, of your lover. But she doesn't. She's, it's, 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 it's magnificent, it's, I think. It's that the we was rather painful. The idea yes. of putting something yeah. together is so crushing. OK. Well, I think, um, sadly, that's where we'll have thank to you, Thank you yeah. for choosing this book. Absolutely, and and for also for reading from it really beautifully. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight. Uh, and I'm, I'm certainly going to be reading more, uh, more Rosamund Lehman. I certainly want. When life, g- when life gives read. you Lehmans. Oh, amazing! <laughs> <laughs> Have you, you been make, sitting on that all like, course, the entire hour? Of course. <laughs> you make podcasts. <laughs> when, I've got a list of them here. When life, the Lehman heads. <laughs> Even I'm laughing, which is... okay. so we should say thank you to Elizabeth. Thank you to Matt Hall, our producer. Thank you also to our sponsor, Unbound. You can get in touch with us on at BacklistedPod on Twitter, at Facebook at Backlisted, and on the Unbound website, unbound.com forward slash Backlisted. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a fortnight. I saw ya! You can choose to listen to Backlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Backlisted, where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks.